What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Simone, let's get back to the macro front because this payroll mm. report really is, it's like, it's good news, right? If you're an employed American. Right. If you're Chairman Powell, you're probably having kind of a breakdown in, in Washington <laughs> somewhere. Uh, you are seeing futures higher off this. I'm, I'm surprised we're not seeing more of a dent. But but just to sum it up, 339,000 new jobs uh, reported last month. The estimate was about 195,000, according to the Bloomberg Terminal. But that coupled with uh, an unemployment rate, which rose by its biggest one-month increase since April 2020. 3.7% um, now is that people coming back in the job market. Yeah. Or is that, um, you know, is that, does it a broader sign of enthusiasm, people coming back? Um, yeah. But, you know, we'll, we'll discuss this and plenty more uh, with Tom LaSalle. Um, he joins us, sorry, Tom Gimble, excuse me, yep. from <laughs> LaSalle Network. <laughs> I've been called worse. Friday morning. Yeah, uh, appreciate you joining us, No, Tom. good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm a nerd too, by the way, if we can just, welcome. I, wa I want to be to the nerd party. <laughs> welcome. Uh, yeah, so talk me through some of what you were seeing from this job report, what you're seeing from trends and staffing and recruiting uh, across the country, and does it dovetail with this positive numbers that we've seen today? I mean, first and foremost, the news today was fantastic, and any anybody painting it as anything other than fantastic, in my, my opinion, is crazy. I think what we've got now is that people don't talk about is versus 2009 or even 2001 is that... Um, there's more companies that exist. The startup space is easier. There's more venture money on the sidelines. So there's more companies for people to go work at when they get laid off from big tech. So we saw, and we have these gig economies. So I mean, my theory, which hasn't, I haven't had a chance to prove it out yet, but is that unemployment rose when we had added over 300,000 jobs because the um, gig workers were going back to work, right? So you had the unemployment rise because more people were filing from being laid off from big tech, yeah. but you had more people re-entering the workforce from the gig economy. The dog walkers are going back to work, guys. So if I had to, hypothetically, big emphasis on hypothetically, go find a new job, yeah. well, how hard would that would that really be? Or would I be kind of scooped up, um, broadly speaking, when we're looking at just how tight this labor market is? Is this still uh, a, a job lookers market? No, I think it's, I think the playing field's been evened. Okay. I, I think what would happen uh, 18 months ago is you would have gotten a $40,000 increase, right? Or a 30% increase or whatever the numbers were. Today, you'd go and you, maybe you get a bump if, if you know, you, you've got a great resume and what have you. But there's still a, a standpoint where companies are hiring people and great people are in demand. Where are you seeing most of the uh, strength? You know, one of some of the things that came through yeah. today, big boost in construction employment, leisure and hospitality, though still significantly below pre-pandemic levels. Are we going back to a, to a pre-pandemic 
sort of environment uh, in terms of the sectors that need people. Yeah, I, my, my opinion is that the, the effect of the pandemic is, is really behind us. And I, I'd love to say that a year from now, no one will even talk about it. But whenever there's bad news, people want something to blame. And where we're at right now is healthcare continues to grow. You're right about the service uh, economy and hospitality. We haven't seen that yet. I believe in the summer months, we'll get that bump with summer travel coming out of the Memorial Day holiday, which always tends to happen. IT continues to be. I mean, when you have the, the security breaches that continue to have, IT is not going anywhere. Accounting mm -hmm. and finance continues to be extremely hot um, of hiring, which means companies are doing back office work, which means uh, M&A is continuing to be there because there's money on the sidelines. And it might not be IPOs. It might be more companies going private as we're seeing the, the smallest amount of IPOs that we've had in years. Right. Well, one of the pieces of this report, which kind of made it a little bit of a mixed report and not just um, uh, kind of polarized, was that there were pieces of this report that suggested maybe not all is great in the labor market, like productivity, for example, being substantially lower. How do you measure that, though? Um, and, and how can you really say, look, you're starting to see a trend here where things like work from home or benefits or the idea that it is a very tight labor market isn't perhaps uh, having a bigger read through into the broader economy. Yeah, I think the productivity measurements, you know, put five economists in a room and get five different answers. <laughs> I, I just think that that's not where we want to go. I think what we've seen is, is that in, in the second half of 2020 and in 2021, productivity from remote work and homework was great because people couldn't leave their houses. There was no travel. There was no going to restaurants. You couldn't do those things. And today you can do whatever you want and productivity drops. And now we're seeing that the smartest people in the room, big tech, they overhired. They didn't know. They didn't know what they were doing. And, and now we're on an even playing field. And we're seeing that companies are laying people off. They're saying, get back in the office. And, you're get, and why are they? Because they're not seeing the growth that they want to have. Well, let's go right. back there to, to, yeah. to the big tech story. I feel like in retrospect, it's this big, like, oh, wow, the, the Apples, the Microsofts, they, they made this wrong call. But here we are talking about them doing this big, massive investment, things like AI and in the cloud and in STEM, and not really laying off workers in the way that, say, Goldman Sachs is, for example, or third round of layoffs, or some of the uh, industrial names are. Talk to us about the sustainability of work in tech right now. Yeah, so I think there's a couple things. Number one, and touching on the AI thing that you were, you were talking about before I came on, is that AI today is what e-commerce was 20 years ago. Okay. Right. So, you know, the, the whole we've all heard the patch.com thing 8000 times. Yeah. Right. But that's what we're talking about right now is that if brick and mortar companies would have gotten on the e-commerce train right off the bat, a lot of e-commerce companies wouldn't have. If Walmart did e-commerce as fast as Amazon did, yeah. Amazon probably wouldn't be Amazon today. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen with AI, except people get it now. Every company is going to be using AI. So the playing field is basically going to be even. Right. But is there even the labor to support that, though? Well, there's a, now we're going to go into a whole other thing that I know you guys probably don't want to talk about with me, but that's the immigration problem that we have. Okay. Right. Mm. The problem with technology hiring is we're educating really, really bright people and we're sending them back to where they're from instead of allowing them to stay and do the work. And the layman on the street thinks that immigration is people coming from Mexico and Central America. And that is one aspect of the labor problem on the blue collar standpoint, for the most part. Sure. And, and I guess, you know, you talk to food service yep. um, companies and they say they're chronically understaffed. You Correct. Know, it's very hard for them to find. Uh, you know, 
so one of the things that the Fed is looking at is a year-end forecast of 4.5% unemployment. Yep. Uh, we're up to 3.7% today, but yep. that's still a pretty wide gap. We're not going to hit 45 this year. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I wait, really? I, yeah, we won't hit 45 this year. Why, why do you think, say that? I, I just believe that, number one, um, per my earlier comment, that there's more companies. So if if Salesforce or Goldman or whomever lays off, every every company, this isn't 1975, right? Where if a company, if, if General Motors lays off, no one's going to hire those people, right? If Salesforce lay, lays people off, General Motors would hire them, right? Everybody goes cross industry now and the world's flat and industries are flat. And now people don't, if you're in the car business, you don't have to stay in the car business. If you're in big tech, you don't have to stay in big tech. So there's a lot more transferable skills and companies will start. If you've got extra cash, you'll start a new division with talent that you have. We have more of an entrepreneurial spirit and people to do that. So I think that unemployment won't come close to four and a half this yeah. year. Well, Tom Gimble, CEO at LaSalle Network. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the macro, though, here, because I think still the, the shocker of the day is this payrolls report, 339 thousand with an estimate of just 195,000 and and I think it's a surprise to everyone both on Wall Street uh, and and Main Street as well I would even argue in in Washington let's bring a true expert here Amy Glazier senior VP of business operations over at Adeco uh, she boasts two decades of experience in things like staffing management business operations uh, so she really is the expert to kind of talk about what is going on on the ground Amy how does this work exactly? We keep waiting for this momentum out of the labor market to kind of slow, if not dissipate completely, and it just seems to be getting stronger. How does that work on the ground? Yeah, I think the word of the day happens to be resiliency as it comes to the labor market. You know, this is the 14th straight month of um, job creation really beating expectations. And although we see a lot and hear a lot about fears of a looming recession and a lot of negativity, 
at the end of the day, there's still almost two open jobs for every single job seeker. And it's something my team and I see on the ground every single day. Employers are still fighting for top talent. They're still trying to get creative. They're being more flexible. And and really, the data speaks to what I think a lot of hiring managers are seeing in their day-to-day world. Amy, where are you seeing the most strength? What sectors are leading this charge? So it's interesting. You have to go almost region by region, industry by industry. We continue to see leisure and hospitality are hot. Um, We've seen a lot in business services, healthcare always in demand. Um, An interesting thing to note is that, you know, we just wrapped up the May jobs report. We're heading into June, and I'm already talking to our seasonal hirers about quarter four. So we're used to talking about Christmas in July, and we're pretty much talking about Christmas in May um, in June right now. So I think employers are forward-looking based on the, the lack of availability of talent in the market. So we continue to see those shifts based on um, a lot of different nuances. You know, that's interesting because one of the things that came out in this job, jobs report was that leisure and hospitality are st- still significantly below pre-pandemic levels. Do you, does the enthusiasm you're hearing from executives, from hiring managers at the moment, suggest that that will change anytime soon? I think they just have such a far way to go, and the gap was so wide in their deficit. It's taking them longer to crawl out of it than they expected. So we continue to see momentum. We continue to see the hospitality and leisure sector try and do everything they can to really attract those workers and not only attract them, but also retain them. You know, not only in hospitality, but specifically in manufacturing and some of our other employers, we're seeing this huge trend on bringing back retirees. And the great thing about that is we're also seeing the appetite from those that have retired to return from the workforce. In fact, we're seeing about one in every six retirees are looking to return to the workforce. Part of that due to a little bit of economic uncertainty. So employers are really leveraging and capitalizing on that um, as an opportunity to fill this gap. So break that down kind of sector-wise here. In in a previous segment, we were talking about perhaps uh, some of the sustainability in the tech sector, for example. When we're talking about these kind of labor market qualities, is it equal among all sectors? Uh, Definitely not. So when you look at like the manufacturing sector, retirees are a perfect opportunity. They've got the skills needed to keep production moving and high productivity output, less of a training time. And that's an industry where we're seeing this huge skills gap. So that's a different um, problem than what we see in the tech sector. What we're seeing in the tech sector today is that Although, you know, we've heard about layoffs from massive employers and we keep continuing to see challenges there, we are seeing that folks that have lost their job are finding a new one very quickly. So I think there are a lot of different factors each industry is having to battle when it comes to their talent strategy. You know, this is that's interesting that you say that because an earlier guest on this program was talking as well about how some of these folks laid off from tech companies are, um, I guess, diverse in their skill sets and able to go mm-hmm. out there and find. Yeah, talk to me more about that. We have just about uh, a minute left. Yes, yeah, so I think there's a big difference between an industry and a and a skill set and occupation. So, although the tech sector as an industry may be declining, those skill sets are in hot demand across all industries. 
So the need for technology professionals exists in those that are still growing. So in the hospitality sector and the healthcare sector, they still need those unique skill sets that happen to lie over in the technology sector. So they're capitalizing on that as well, which is partially what makes it great news for those that have faced some, you know, some hard times with layoffs recently. Yeah, certainly something we're going to be keeping an eye on very, very closely. Amy Glazier, Senior VP over at ADECO, we thank you. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I think everyone's really, really psyched for this weekend. At least the equity market certainly, certainly is. Uh, and a lot to, di- to digest there, Maddie, from the payrolls, as, as John had, had mentioned. You've got the Chinese stimulus. You've got some good earnings, some bad earnings, a little bit of a mixed pot there. Yeah, and I'm so glad, Creedy, that you flagged the China story to me. I was reading in a little bit this morning, and I was confused about why we were seeing green on the screen. But to your point, the China stimulus, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the stock market and the bond market are responding to two different things. Again, this is just my theory. We'll ask the experts here in a, real, in a, in a second. But uh, to me, look, we didn't have a ton of pre-market action um, even as early as, as 5 a.m. Uh, we had, you know, stocks only futures higher by like two-tenths of 1%. You certainly were not seeing the rally that you are seeing right now. And, and I think a lot of it does have to do with the Chinese stimulus story because, again, I'm going to nerd out. Uh, bear with me, Ben Emmons. He's going to join us in just a second. But, you know, 15 years ago when we were getting out of the global financial crisis, infrastructure investment from China was a really big story. And mm. Chinese growth has been a big uh, concern when you look at kind of the day-to-day trading outside of the debt ceiling saga. So um, let's get some expertise and see if my, my theory is right here. Ben Emmons joins us. He is the head of fixed income over at New Edge Wealth. Uh, ben, talk to us a little bit about the read-through of China. Is the read-through of 2023 the same as it was 15 years ago? It's it's clearly different, you know, um, because you do have an over-indebted property sector, and that is a drag on the... On the Chinese economy. So as much as you saw this V-shaped recovery from the reopening, which is similar as we saw here in the US and in in Europe, the subsequent cooling of that through the manufacturing sector is then really dragged down further by this property sector. And I think the stimulus measures that you're seeing overnight coming out are really addressing the property sector from not being too big of a drag on that reopening momentum. And so China has that ability, right, to very quickly inject liquidity into the system and affect the economy almost instantly. Uh, Why PMI data in China, if it goes below 50, I think it's not always an alarming thing because China can just boost that in a a moment. But at the same time, there are structural issues in China that are are just like we had post-financial crisis. You, You enter into some sort of a new normal idea too in China. So it will be with us, but I think this stimulus story overnight is at least a sign that China wants to have this reopening continue to be having momentum and try to reach that growth target for this year, which they set at 5.5%. Ben, is it a recognition from China that the reopening has not been as uh, bullish, for lack of a better word, as we initially anticipated? It could be, Madison, but I, I think if you look at the granular data of that, you know, leisure activity in China has moved just as sharply up as, a, as we had here in the initial stages of the reopening. 
Uh, lots of mobility is is happening too. There's data out from Goldman Sachs on that they're seeing a lot of outbound flights coming out of China. So I do think that the momentum is there. I think what China indeed doesn't want is that that starts to falter driven by structural factors. So I think to that sense, you're right about that China's addressing this head on. Now, will will we get this resurgence and all this demand uh, coming out that people are so anticipating this entire year? That's to be seen. China is also, to an extent, like I said, a bit tactical with its measures, right? It wants to address the economy, but not potentially overheated. So I think we have to keep that in mind. Ben, let's come back to the story stateside here, which is this payrolls report, 339,000 relative to a 195,000 estimate, a blowout payrolls report for, I think, the 14th time in a row. Ben, let's talk about this bond market read through the two year yield at 440, let's call it 447, a move of 12 basis points higher. How high does the two year yield go? It could go a bit higher because, in my view, I, you know, this report just underscores one: the economy obviously is not in a recession. And although I I, I second the, the work by Anna Wong and her team on the state level analysis that they've done, and I was actually talking to her right before the program, clearly there's some some parts of the country that are, are sluggish or may have recession. The jobs report doesn't show it, and it comes again from similar sources. Our leisure uh, sector continues to expand, construction is expanding, which which may be pointing to the Inflation Reduction Act. So there's this torque underneath the economy that actually should lead you to somewhat higher yields again. So the two-year as the sort of the forward-looking yield for Fed policy should be closer to where the Fed funds rate actually is. And and that's that's a long way from here, Dale, still, but that's not entirely impossible. So I say still think of, of a higher rate environment from here, given the strength of the economy. I want to talk about that strength that we saw in the jobs report, because if you look at the total hours worked, it did decline just a tiny bit, a 0.1 average hours decrease. So I know that's not a lot, uh, but I wonder if productivity decreases is something that you look at and think about when sussing out the impact of a jobs report like this. It's relevant because productivity has had its you know really ups and downs since we reopened the economy. In fact, actually, the official the official numbers are negative, and uh, and this hours work does does say like okay, there are probably swaths of people that are again out of the labor force for periods of time, but that affects that productivity, or it's still this sort of very stop go um you know stay at home and at work uh, environment that we're in. But I don't think it's that alarming for the health of the labor market in itself. It continues to be a report of broad-based gains mo- across most sectors. Uh, interestingly, that temporary employment again picked up. Um, the only things I think was in the household, household service and weaknesses in terms of the duration of employment, for example, that, that went up a bit. Um, you know, I think that this is a report that shows that the economy is not off the rails. It keeps that resilience. And and I feel that the, the leisure sector, again, back to that, is such a big driver of this, this report. And at some point, that will change, I guess, because it's a very cyclical sector. But I think it's also a story of a global reopening that's affecting our, our uh, labor market. If tourism is impacting leisure, if immigration from the Mexican border is impacting maybe the the construction sector or other sectors, then, you know, expanding labor supply from those areas 
yeah, keeps this labor market hot. So despite that, um, that decline in, in the hours worked. Right. And, and I think it really speaks to kind of the the future of how you actually calculate kind of the the inputs of, of, of this economy in, in a post-COVID world. Uh, ben, let's talk a little bit about kind of the cross-asset messages that you're getting in terms of the bond market specifically. Of course, we know the front end of the curve is going to be tied to the hip of what the Federal Reserve does. How quickly could the Fed change its tune when it comes to growth when it comes to needing to stimulate the economy and uh, perhaps to some extent, although this is, to be fair, an exaggeration, uh, taking a page out of the China playbook. How quickly could that transition happen? I think it will only happen quickly if we see material weakness in employment, um, because on inflation, it's sort of a, a you know, it's saying like they're on a course to try to bring it really down to 2%. They're very determined to do that. So in, in order to change that regime of like, basically they're having currently a, say, a single mandate focusing just on inflation for the time being. So if you're seeing a, a sudden really quick uptick in unemployment and broader losses, that I think does change that reaction function. Uh, and that's happened in the past that way, in a way, because I think that what they do then is plug in the losses of jobs into the possibility that the inflation rate starts to decline so fast, so quick that they end up in on the wrong side of that, meaning much too low inflation rate again with risk of deflation. I think we're at this point, not at that point at all, uh, given the strength of the labor market. But I do think the Fed's reaction function to stimulus is driven by, you know, rapidly deteriorating employment uh, picture. And, and so we're not there yet. In fact, I think with the opposite way, if this report shows this strength, and services uh, continue to be really robust in the economy, yeah. then their preferred measure, of course, services will not budge much down. And that means they have to continue to raise rates. Yeah, certainly a, a conundrum. I got to say, you cannot pay me a million dollars to be Chairman Powell right now. Um, a, a lot to digest. Ben Emmons, the head of fixed income over at New Edge Wealth. We thank you, as always, talk about this bond market, this jobs market, and of course, the growth story in the economy. You're listening to The Taint. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We have a really exciting guest, I think, and who, who could probably answer a lot of the questions we have on, on the, the not just the payrolls report, but kind of the future of hiring as well, Maddie, as we talk about all this investment going into AI and all of this investment going into kind of the tech sector. But how does it actually play out on the ground? And what does it mean in terms of net positive or negative for the consumers at the end of this, whether that's less jobs available or, you know, more efficient labor that could could benefit us uh, in the end? Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the trends here are almost hard to keep up with because mm -hmm. they on the, on the surface, you're seeing, you know, a hot, hot, hot payrolls report for, by the way, 14 times in a row. Oof. Wild. But uh, on the ground, we, we definitely want to hear uh, kind of that perspective as well. And for that, we bring in Kara Brennan, the chief people officer over at Lattice, uh, talking to us a little bit about this AI story and whether we're prepared for it. Kara, thank you for joining the program. Let's start there. You we want this massive investment. We have this sector that's growing super, super quickly. Do we mm -hmm. have the people infrastructure to support it? Um, that's the question chief people officers, HR folks, um, executives are asking across the board. Um, we just, uh, at Lattice, where I work, we have about 
um, 6,000 companies that are small to mid-market. And um, we have a community of more than 20,000 HR people that, that interact and talk and ask each other questions of what are you seeing with ChatGPT? What are you seeing in future of AI? What kind of tools are you buying? What kind of policies are you setting? And some themes are emerging there. Um, one is that uh, employers are understanding that employees are already using these tools. So they're wanting to get ahead of it with policies and practices that are sensible, but also take into account really important things like security. Um, I think in general, and it, at least this is my opinion and, and what we're seeing at Lattice, is that there isn't this palpable fear that jobs will be eliminated but we are trying to get ahead in terms of our workforce planning, especially at large enterprises, which could see a significant shift in the types of workers they hire and the types of workers that those workers do, depending on the tools that they purchase. Um, they're trying to get ahead of planning and looking at this as a five-year, a 10-year transition rather than an immediate jolt or something that, w that should drive panic. And then I think the last piece is really understanding what tools they should be buying. And we get down to this um, as, as people leaders. What tools should we, should we invest in um, in our tech stack to, make, to continue to drive great employee experiences, to continue to help employees develop, and to enable the business to get a lot more efficiencies um, in, in pockets where we already are starting to see those tools arise? Yeah, so Bloomberg Intelligence has a report on how the generative AI market could fuel a $1.3 trillion uh, addition to markets by 2023, um, by the end of the mm -hmm. year. But then we've also done some reporting on how the AI boom is going to delete a lot of jobs traditionally held by women. Which of those two is the winner here? Is the addition to the market going to lead to more jobs for folks, or is it going to be something that deletes jobs um, for specifically for groups of people that have maybe had some lack of access to jobs previously? Well, unfortunately, I don't have that crystal ball. I can tell you on the ground um, that these are definitely things we're thinking about and talking about in the HR um, realm. What the consensus is of the folks that I've heard and, and I'm talking to is really looking at who do we have in seat now and how can we help them be better at their jobs and definitely strong sensitivities around folks in underrepresented groups and women. And those are folks that we want to continue to stay in seat um, and continue to diversify our workforces. Um, but what we all know is upskilling and reskilling is really the path to the future. And, and the good news is that's what's always been the case when you're managing workforces. So those folks who are willing to learn about um, the, the possibilities uh, of, of AI and learn how to use those new tools within our companies is what we on the HR side um, are looking to respond to and continue to drive um, understanding around. Kara, let's talk about kind of the scary word in markets here, which is the R word, recession at the end yeah. of the day. Uh, a lot of the consensus years that we're gonna we're gonna see a, a proper recession by the end of 2023, uh, if not early 2024. In these next 12 months, are you starting to see hints of kind of widespread layoffs, or is this starting to look like this inevitable recession whenever it hits may at the end of the day be a job full recession? What do you think? It's it's interesting because a lot of the conversations again among the HR community have baked in a mindset 
of of restraint and have baked in a mindset of, of conservative hiring, of really driving efficiency and productivity. And that started uh, two quarters ago when we started talking about what a recession would look like this year. Um, what this means practically in the seat of HR folks um, you know, and, and Lattice is a talent platform, so we talk a lot about these things. It's really understanding the talent that we have in our companies, how to ensure that talent is set up to succeed and drive the business to succeed, driving real alignment between employees' day-to-day work and key business priorities, knowing that those business priorities could shift in a down market or a recession, and really, really focusing on building a culture of high performance, prioritizing feedback, clear performance management, um, making sure that our best performers are rewarded, um, and having clear and transparent uh, philosophies around things like compensation so people have a future um, that they can look to in the company. company. So I think a lot of of the behavior change that would be driven by a recession is already being adopted within organizations. And it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing some additional jobs being added because I think this conservative mindset is something that kicked in months ago before maybe even the markets knew. Yeah, Kara, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for joining us. I think we're going to have to leave it there because we only have about 30 seconds left. But thank you so much for that insight. And it's so important, Cree. We talk about it all the time, the impact of AI, whether or not uh, it's going to lead to more or less jobs. And it sounds like something that is going to still be a question mark for uh, even the the greatest minds on this, the chief people officers who deal with this big question every single day. Yeah, absolutely. Kara Brennan, chief people officer over at Lattice, uh, giving us some crucial insights on that. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
look, we talked a lot about what's going on in the U.S. in in Europe. Let's talk about the EM story as well. Who better to bring in than Kristen Seva, managing principal over at Payton and Regal, to talk to us a little bit about the EM outlook? And and Kristen, there's so much to digest in the EM world. Top of mind for me is China, but we could. I really feel like we could pick any country in the world and go there. But let's start with the Chinese story. Madison knows this. I've been obsessed with the headline that we got this morning around 5 a.m. that they are potentially looking at extra stimulus for their property sector. We know that's where a lot of the slowdown has been. Your take on just how much of a difference that might make. Well, I think China overall right now, um, just in terms of the big picture, we had such a uh, weak economy in 2022, and this year is going to be very different. Um, I think it's really going to be a consumer-led uh, growth story in China. You know, if you, as you've seen, some of the data come out, very strong retail sales up 18 uh, percent. The industrial production numbers dis- disappointed. But that really didn't surprise us. We really think it's going to be a consumer-led growth story. Q1 was very, very strong. We think that has to to come down, but we're still going to get 5.5% growth. As far as the property sector goes, I think additional stimulus will be helpful, but the property sector itself is is quite has been quite problematic. I think they're looking to stabilize that, but not to overstimulate because... I think the government is is concerned about uh, the potential that that could have for um, really causing problems overall in in credit markets. So I think they're going to be fairly cautious on any sort of a stimulus going forward, not to overdo it. One thing I've been wondering about with the China story is just that the reopening has felt like more of a trickle than a wave. Is that wave going to start to pick up through the second half of this year and into 2024? Well, again, I think that the the first quarter was so much stronger than expected that some of the data that's been coming out has been uh, lower than expectations, but expect expectations were very, very high. So that 18% retail sales number that I mentioned was a bit lower than expectations of 21%, but still quite high. So we think that, again, we're going to be set up for a year that's going to be around 5.5% growth. Next year, we're probably going to see something around 4.5% growth with some sort of level of, of moderation to this consumption-led boom that we're seeing. How are you looking at the U.S. growth story then in terms of kind of the ripple effects vis-a-vis the dollar? I know Madison uh, has been... I don't know why he's called you Madison. It's Maddie. Okay. <laughs> um, Maddie call, it has been looking very serious. closely at the uh, at the ripple effects of the, of the dollar. Uh, when you're looking at a, a Federal Reserve that is potentially ending their, their tightening cycle, whether that be right now or, or at the end of, of, of the summer, the ripple effects through the dollar on the EM space how do you look at that from a from a broader complex? Well, the end of the Fed hiking cycle is a good thing for emerging market debt. That was one of the things that really weighed on the asset class last year. So now that we've got that risk behind us and also have uh, the China weakness behind us, we think that that all spells um, a positive signal in terms of where we can see EM currencies go. So our view is that 
the uh, the dollar is going to be weak versus EM currencies going forward. We've come off a 10-year very strong cycle of, of the dollar. The dollar is overvalued, and it's not a story anymore where we can point to U.S. exceptionalism versus the rest of the world. Now with the U.S. potentially going into a recession at some point and, and slower growth in the U.S. So we think that that growth differential between the U.S. and other countries, and in particular emerging market countries, is going to continue to widen, which should be a positive thing for uh, emerging markets uh, currencies. Yeah, Kristen, I know I know you spend a lot of time on the macro here, but going micro, I talked to an analyst this week who gave me a really cool example. He talked about how Clorox wipes are highly adopted in the U.S., but that's a huge opportunity internationally because uh, there are higher margins on the wipes and they're not used as much uh, in other countries, particularly in Latin America. So that's a big growth opportunity for them, particularly as the dollar does decline. Uh, are there any other examples like that that you think that investors should be thinking about and looking at as potential growth opportunities in the EM space? Yeah, I think in, in the emerging market debt space, um, it's really a sovereign story. This asset class is primarily about countries and, and picking the countries that, that, you, that you think are going to improve. Um, and we also have a growing emerging market corporate space, though, as well. So I think on, on the corporate side, uh, there are definitely uh, opportunities within various emerging market corporate markets, uh, well-managed corporations that we think um, could do well in this environment as, as well. And that corporate space also, in terms of the duration, is a bit lower than, than the duration of, of the sovereigns. But I'd say in general, we think there's a lot of opportunities. You mentioned Latin America. A lot of opportunities in, in Latin America, particularly where central banks um, have done a good job of proactively tightening um, and so getting a, getting a hold on their domestic inflation and having inflation start to come down uh, in many of these countries because they did such a good job of, of being very proactive and even hiking earlier than the Fed. Uh, so we think that overall macro environment should be very positive in many of these countries for that business cycle and for these businesses to be able to operate in a lower inflation environment. Talk to us a little bit about the carry trade here. I mean, look, carry has always been popular when you're when you're looking for kind of a hunt for for yield. But in this kind of era of where perhaps the markets are looking through the the recession that everyone expects to be just around the corner, just how popular is the risk-taking? Just how popular is the carry trade right now? Well, I think in fixed income, in, in the higher-yielding parts of fixed income like emerging markets, you're getting starting yields now. If you were to get and buy into the emerging market debt asset class right now, you're getting starting yields that are very, very high, so um, over 8% on most emerging market portfolios. And you know, even in, in an asset class like the emerging market local asset class, where the overall index yield is six and a half, there's a significant dispersion in there. In many countries, are offering eight to twelve percent local yields. So we think that uh, no matter what you're investing in, even if you were investing just in the overall index right now in emerging markets, your starting yields are going to be very, very high, um, and that would indicate 
from a previous looking at, at previous historical periods where you have these kinds of yields that your total return expectations are also going to be high, say in the eight to twelve percent range over the next three years. So I think uh, the EM asset class overall right now is a good carry story. I think within the asset class, you really have to pick and choose and not just rely on a on a on only carry, uh, you really have to pay attention to fundamentals and to what you think your overall total return is going to be. So we have a nice mix in our portfolios of both investment grade and high yield opportunities uh, in in the portfolio. And keep in mind that emerging market debt, even though it has this high yield, it's very highly rated. So all three asset classes are, are overall investment grade with a high percentage, over 60% in, in uh, investment grade securities. Certainly an involving market. Kristen Seva, we thank you as always. She is the managing principal over at Payton and Regal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.